0: One of, my, uh, one of my favorite images in the Gospel of John is the image of peace. Peace is something that I, I think for a lot of us some t- feels elusive, right? I know there are a lot of times in my own life where I've, I've craved peace and looked for peace and searched for peace and just haven't been able to find it. And, and part of that is just because I'm a person and, and people don't ever have peace consistently because we tend to be contentious. Not here at St. John's, but in some other places, you know, sometimes we argue and fuss, right? And, and so there's, there's that peace sometimes that I lack just because I'm a human being. But, but there's a, a deeper peace that I seek, and that's, that's the peace in community. And I remember when I was a kid and I, I saw my parents, and I thought to myself for a long time, you know, well, obviously when, when I find a wife, when I find a person to share my life with, I'm going to have peace, and then the 80s happened, and for an entire decade, I watched my parents argue. And I was like, oh, well, they don't have peace. Maybe there's not peace there either. Now, in the 90s, they kind of reconciled, and since then, they've, they've come a long way. I really have to commend them. But it's, you know, I, even, even those most stable relationships, we look for a peace that doesn't necessarily exist. I remember thinking, as a lot of people do, that, you know, when I'm a grown-up, when I'm an adult, and I know everything, ha-ha, that... You know, my, my marriage relationship is going to be so much better than my parents' relationship. We're not going to argue. We're not going to fuss. We're not going to fight. We're going to sit down at the table and work things out like the two rational adults that we really are. And, okay, so, so that hasn't worked out. Because even, even in marriage where, where my wife and I like each other and love each other and want to be around each other, and I'm a pretty rational guy and she's a pretty rational woman, the, the people that we love also are people who know where our buttons are. And over 15 years, we've become really good at just pushing those buttons. And if you're anything like me, not only do you know where the buttons are, but sometimes you kind of like to push them. And so sometimes my lack of peace is my own fault. All right, probably more often than not, my lack of peace is my own fault. I remember uh, fairly early on in our marriage, you know, when... When we were still in what I call the power struggle years, where we're trying to figure out, you know, who does the dishes and who does the bills and who does that and who does that and who's in charge of this and where should I listen to her and where should she she listen to me? Uh, A night sitting on the couch with my dog wondering if my wife was going to come home because we had been fighting nonstop for what felt like forever. Maybe, maybe, you know, those months where, oh, we're just going to fight this month. This is what we're going to do. You know, it was one of those months. And, and wondering, you know, in, in this relationship that's supposed to bring me joy, in this relationship that's supposed to bring me peace, in this relationship in which I was thinking that I was going to finally find my wholeness, you know, I, here I am wondering and, and holding in my heart the, the fact that it was a mystery to me at that moment whether it was going to continue. Now, the good news is that she came home and we figured it out. And it hasn't always been smooth, because I can be kind of a jerk sometimes. But, you know, you, you figure it out and you work out those power struggles and you learn how to make that life together. And, and peace comes. And I, I hear this word that Jesus uses in the gospel, peace be with you, when he goes to the disciples. And it's a word that I remember from earlier in the gospel, when Jesus is getting ready to say goodbye to his disciples. He's, he's giving them, you know, basically, here's the condensed version of everything that we have done together over the last several years. These are the things that I want for you to hold in your heart. These are the things that I want you to remember. These are the things that I want you to pass on. And he says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not let them be afraid. And we realize that, that peace isn't this absence of conflict, but the peace that Jesus is giving that the world can't give, the world won't give, the world wouldn't give away if it could, is this peace in the wholeness of our being, that in the presence of God, we are with somebody who sees us, wounds and all, and loves us even in our woundedness. Some of that we do find in a marriage relationship. Some of that we do find in our children. Some of that we do find in the important people in our lives. But that peace and wholeness, that place where we can be still, that place where we can be certain, that place where we can be sure, is a place that we only find in the presence of God, in the presence of the one who formed us, in the presence of the one who knows us, in the presence of the one who, from through water and word, And spirit has promised to love us no matter what. And so when when Jesus appears in front of the disciples as he's resurrected and says, Peace be with you, it's a word that has context. It's not just a word that Jesus throws out there in the middle of nowhere. It's a word that he's shared with them before. It's a word that he's taught them what it means. It's a word that they understand as meaning something very specific Part of it's don't be afraid, because I know you've never seen anyone who's been, been raised from the dead before. And if we remember the Easter text from last week in Luke, we remember that when the disciples heard this word that Jesus had been raised from the dead, they didn't believe it either. So part of it's, all right, y'all calm down, because this is really happening. But part of it is Jesus giving to them the thing that only the presence of God can give them, which is this sense of wholeness and stillness and hope. That even in the midst of our brokenness and hard times, and the hardest times we can imagine, the presence of God stills our hearts. And then Jesus does something that I think is very important. He breathes on them and says, receive the Spirit. Remember, this breath is in context, too. We we hearken all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, when God has formed the man with clay with his own hands and breathes into the lungs of the man the breath of life and gives to the man that spirit, that animating wind, that, that thing that causes life to be and causes that clay to become flesh and stir. And Jesus imparts this to the disciples. In some ways, I think, it's, it's almost more a resurrection than, than Jesus being raised from the dead because what it's resurrecting in them is hope what it's resurrecting in them is purpose. What it's resurrecting in them is the sense that they can go on from the cross. They can see that the tomb is empty. They can live their lives believing it, and they can live their lives preaching it. This breath of the Holy Spirit that Jesus breathes into them is the animating energy of the church so that they can share this good news with other people. And there's, a, there's a third thing here that I think is really important. And, and this kind of goes back to what I was talking with the kids about. You know, when I, when I asked them, have you ever met anybody who's been raised from the dead? Remember what happened five minutes ago? And, and nobody was able to raise their hand, right? You know, we have what I kind of call the first postmodern person appear in the gospel, which is Thomas. Thomas is somebody I can understand. Because Thomas is somebody who hears, Jesus has been here. And he says, Well, I'm not going to believe it until I see Jesus. You know, I'm not going to believe it until I put my hand in his hand and my hand in his side. And I'm able to confirm this with evidence for myself. And, you know, Thomas forevermore has been called doubting Thomas. And I I think in some ways, Thomas gets a bad rap. Because Thomas is really just acting and asking for the same thing the other disciples got, right? Right? So there's, there's that sense, well, well, y'all saw it. I want to see it, too. I want the evidence, too. And let's face it, Thomas is called the twin, and one of the things that twins do, and you can correct me if I'm wrong about this, one of the things that twins do is that if one gets it, the other has to have it, because we're not interchangeable, right? That's the, that's the message of every twin that I've ever met in my life. I am not the same as my twin, and you have to like me individually, too, right? So Thomas acts out his normal twinness. And says, well, y'all seeing it might be good, but I have to see it too. Don't forget me. And also Thomas reveals that, that very humanity. And someone who has met Jesus, someone who has been with Jesus, someone who has walked with Jesus. And even though he's not even named until late in the gospel, he's been with Jesus for, for the same amount of time as, most, as the other disciples. And, and I wonder if Thomas isn't experiencing some of that very human fear that this new resurrected Jesus doesn't have time for him. I remember when my first friend went away to college when I was a junior in high school, and uh, he he was two years older than me, so he was always the cool guy, right? And he came back from college for spring break and didn't call me. He was my best friend, and back for a week and couldn't even bother to call me. And I remember finally nailing him down and just saying, you know, you were here for a week, and we couldn't talk, and we've been best friends for seven years. And he said, well, Eric, you know, I'm, I'm two years older than you, and college has changed me. <laughs> Which, as a high schooler, I don't understand. As a college student, I began to get. As an adult, I can see it so clearly in development. But when it's your best friend, God, that hurts. You know, that hurts your soul. That hurts your heart. And I wonder if Thomas didn't have some fear in him that this resurrection had done something that had changed Jesus and changed their relationship, and maybe he didn't have a place with Jesus anymore. And then we get maybe the most important part of this reading, where Jesus comes back and says to Thomas, see, here are my hands. This is my side. Don't be doubting, but believe. And For me, in in hearing about what this resurrected Jesus was about, there is something powerful because it tells us something about the character of God and about how we're in relationship with God, as much as it tells us about a relationship with Thomas. Because we see something in the resurrected Jesus that I don't know that I would have expected. The resurrected Jesus maintains the wounds. And, and we talk about, you know, when, when we're raised from the dead, we're going to be perfect and we're going to know everything and we're going to be able to, I don't know, make ice cream from thin air because that's what we want, right? Basically, we expect that everything that's wounded is going to be healed. Everything that we don't like about ourselves is going to be fixed. I'm going to be skinny and good-looking for a change, right? And, and this is what resurrection is going to be. God is going to make me more perfect. But Jesus comes back with wounds, isn't that curious? It, it tells us that one of the most fundamental truths about God, that is one of the most uncomfortable truths about God for me, remains true. That, you know, God isn't just going to make things go away. Maybe my most ardent prayer throughout my life has been God, make this not hurt. You know, God, make me feel whole. There's that peace again, right? Give me peace. Give me stillness. You know, I, I understand that I have to bear the consequences of my actions, but you, can't we just skip to the part where I'm healed up? You know, and, and even more, you know, can't we skip to the part where, where I don't have to deal with the fact that the things that hurt still hurt, that I have that litany of things in my head that I've done, that I'm ashamed of, that I keep going over and over and over again in my mind, even though I've heard the forgiveness, and maybe I'm not the only one who does this. You know, it's kind of like when I was using a table saw and thought that my finger was a good pusher and uh, got just a little too close, and I I did just about as little damage as you can possibly do to yourself with a table saw. I basically cut my nail, but took off a little flesh too, and for the next year, whenever I would knock it on a table or against something, that nerve hurt. It was tender for the next year, a year and a half, and I just wanted it to, to be better, and now it's It's better, but it's still a little more tender than everything else. It's a wound that I carry, even though it's healed. You know, the truth of the resurrection is that when we are raised, we are still fundamentally the same people that we were before we died, which isn't necessarily the thing that I want. But what it tells us about the character of God is that when God says he loves us, God loves us. God loves us for who we are. God loves us, warts and wounds and all. And the thing I think that's different in the resurrection than is true in this life is I hope that finally we can hear that, we can believe that, and we can experience that, and we can dwell in that in a way that we've never been able to experience yet. Because We believe that God's love doesn't subsume us into the divine where we are then lost and and floating in happy Jesus' land forever. But we believe that, as we hear in Revelation, that God is recreating the new heaven and the earth here among us. God is making this place perfected. God is perfecting creation. We're not waiting on some glad morning when we fly away. We're waiting on the time when the prayer that God's kingdom come, God's will be done on earth as, in, as it is in heaven becomes the present enduring reality. We are praying for the time when God takes creation and finally declares it to belong to God and that creation is now fully under the reign of God in a way that it never has been. And finally, we can experience that love and presence and peace of God that we have always yearned for. And in a way, it's frustrating because really what I want for God to do is take away my pain, if I'm really being honest. But in a way, it's liberating because it tells me that my pain has purpose. My pain shapes my character. My, my pain is something that God can love, too. And if we want to be really serious for a minute, isn't that the thing that we're all really afraid of? That God's going to see our heart, God's going to see our brokenness, God's going to see our doubt, God's going to see our shame, God's going to see that thing that separates us from everybody else and God won't love us either? And the gospel, the one that God is actually preaching to our hearts, we hear the clear proclamation that even God bears the wounds of relationship. Even, even Jesus forever bears these wounds because the nature of love is to share in that too. And we hear the good news that we worship a God who doesn't have to turn us into something we're not. We worship a God who loves us where we are and declares our brokenness to be holy ground too. So as we ponder the mystery of the resurrection, as, as we wonder, you know, how is it that I fit into this vision of God's kingdom, being the, the broken person that I am, being the person who carries all the things that I carry like everybody else, one of the pieces of good news that we can bring to the world is that we worship a God who loves us, really, for who we are, where we are, and forgives us and calls us by name, and makes room for us, all of us, our whole self, leaves nothing out, and declares even those spaces that we think are broken and fallow and dead and buried to be places where life can exist too. Amen.